This is Gordon Vernick with Jazz Insights. Today I would like to continue with the music of the great tenor saxophonist Stan Getz. In particular, I'd like to focus on his recordings in the 1950s. After he left Woody Herman's group in 1950, he um, went out on his own, played with his own quartet, and also played recordings with a variety of other very, very well-known jazz artists. The 1950s brought about changes in recording technology. In particular, you see the emergence of the 33 and a third LP. What that means is that, you know, prior to 1950s, um, all records were 78. So that meant that a record could only last for about three minutes. We get into the late 40s, early 50s. The technology allows for longer recordings, also better remote recordings. Now, there are a lot of live recordings um, come to us from the early 50s, from nightclubs in a variety of cities around the world. That technology that allowed for longer recordings really allows for the jazz artist to, to play longer solos. So we really get a great idea of what they sounded like in a live situation. See, the 1930s and 40s, those records were only three minutes long, so we really don't get an idea of what they sounded like live. But this really changes everything. We're going to go to a live 1952 recording with Stan Getz featuring Jimmy Rainey on the guitar. This is a song called... Parker 51, which is homage to Charlie Parker, and you're going to hear an amazingly fast piece, and Stan Getz just burns through the chord changes. This is actually a contrafaction on Cherokee, which is another homage to Charlie Parker, because of course the great Coco that Parker recorded is a contrafaction on Cherokee. Check out Stan's playing, 1952, live at Birdland with Jimmy Rainey on guitar. to Charlie Parker. Stan Getz just blows through those chord changes effortlessly. You know, his first recordings that really brought him great notoriety were beautiful ballads, in particular, um, Early Autumn. In 1952, he made a record with the great guitarist Johnny Smith, and the song was called Moonlight in Vermont. Getz plays a beautiful obligato behind him, and then at one point in the song plays a very short solo, which really, again, solidifies his standing in the community as one of the greatest ballad interpreters. So we're going to listen to an excerpt of this 1952 recording, Moonlight in Vermont with Johnny Smith, but we're going to check out Stan's short solo. Beautiful sound, great phrasing, and a monumental solo. ¶¶ 
That song, Moonlight in Vermont, became one of his important pieces in his repertoire. Even though he plays a very short solo on that, I, I believe it really makes that recording stand out from, from other recordings from that period. And of course, Johnny Smith is a great guitarist. In 1952, uh, Stan Getz was signed to a label ran, run by a man by the name of Norman Granz. Norman Granz is a very interesting producer, impresario um, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, and he started a series of concerts in the 40s called Jazz at the Philharmonic. Started his own record label called Clef Records in the 1950s. Eventually that became known as Verve Records. The Jazz at the Philharmonic concerts were known worldwide, and Stan Getz was an integral part of those concerts, and then was later signed by Grands for the Clef, later to be known as the Verve label. This gave Stan opportunities to record with some of the best jazz musicians of the 1950s. So on the Verve label, we're going to check out a recording of Stan Getz playing Stella by Starlight, which is a jazz standard. One of the things about Stan's playing is that his improvisations are really melodies. Even though they're improvised, sometimes his improvisations are as strong or better than the original melodies. So if you know Stella by Starlight and then compare it to this solo that he plays, this is a magnificently constructed solo with great ideas and great development. So Stan, 1952, his solo on Stella by Starlight. That's a lesson in how to construct a solo. Um, the melody that he improvises is so strong that it can stand on its own. A lot of improvisers rely on technique as opposed to lyricism, and, and Stan possessed both an incredible sense of lyricism and melody, and then an ability to really play the horn um, w without any limitations, which we're going to hear on this next track. And the next piece we're going to listen to is Duke Ellington's It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. This is from a Dizzy Gillespie recording. It's actually an interesting band because it's Oscar Peterson's trio, led by Dizzy Gillespie, with Max Roach on the drums. So this is a, an amazing band, and of course it features Stan, and then you're going to hear Stan burn through the chord changes. I mean, he plays hard bop as well as any great tenor player from this era. Thank you. 
gets, on one hand, you have this warm, tender lyricist who could turn around and just smoke you right off the bandstand. He was really an amazing player and was quite ubiquitous in the 1950s. In fact, in 1954 at Birdland, he was the guest artist with the Count Basie Orchestra. Lester Young was was, uh, Stan Getz's idol, and of course, Lester played with the Basie band through the 1930s into the early 40s. So this is a great opportunity to hear Stan Getz really taking Lester's chair with the Basie Man in 1954. So this is from a live recording, and this is called Little Pony. So check out Stan playing with the Basie Band, paying homage to Lester Young. In 1955, Stan Getz was out in Los Angeles playing a bit part in a biopic movie, which was called The Benny Goodman Story. In the afternoons, they didn't have much to do, so a lot of the musicians um, picked up uh, recording uh, dates or other gigs, and he did a, um, an album in 1955, and from that album, we're going to listen to um, a piece called Shine. It's a rather brisk tempo and you're going to hear um, Stan, again, burn through some chord changes. But he plays with such ease and great clarity, and that's what makes this recording such a classic. The interesting thing is this was called West Coast Jazz. It was the name of the album, but actually all the musicians were from the East Coast, so it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek title. So let's check out Stan on Shine, 
on that particular recording, Stan actually plays 18 choruses. And each chorus just seems to build and get better than the previous one. He plays in such a relaxed manner, at, at such a fast tempo, it really never feels like he's rushing or, or really struggling to play those lines, which are just so clear. Um, we're going to close the show with um, a great song that you don't ordinarily associate with jazz. This is called Dark Eyes, and I believe this is based on a Russian folk tune. With this particular song, um, you can really hear, uh, I guess, Stan gets his Eastern European roots come through. This record was made um, under the auspices of Dizzy Gillespie and also features a great tenor saxophonist and alto saxophonist, Sonny Stitt. So if you listen to the entire recording, you can hear Diz and, of course, Sonny Stitt, who was a magnificent player in his own right, and then, of course, Stan. But on the record, Stitt is playing alto saxophone. We're going to go out with Dark Eyes, a 1956 recording, and we're going to here stand with his Eastern European roots burning all the way. This has been Jazz Insights with Dr. Gordon Vernick. Visit me on the web at gordonvernick.com. Jazz Insights is produced by WMLB AM 1690, the voice of the arts in Atlanta, Georgia.